Now, one thing that I think can sometimes make a good book is when one of our or many of our characters horribly betrays the rest of the characters in the story. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Keep It fictional podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. My name is Sadie, and I am so excited to be here with you and with all of my book friends today. Joining me today, I have Virginia, Mark, and Corrine. Now, when you ask somebody what makes a good book, you might hear a variety of different things, but quite commonly you hear strong characters, an engaging storyline, maybe something that changes your perspective, lets you see things from a different viewpoint. Now, one thing that I think can sometimes make a good book is when one of our or many of our characters horribly betrays the rest of the characters in the story. <laughs> I think it makes for an interesting story. I think it makes for a suspenseful story. I think that it allows you to be completely surprised and confused by maybe what the author is trying to go for. And that can, I think, make a very good story. So today we are talking about books that involve a betrayal. I'm very excited to see what my book friends have brought for us today with books involving a betrayal. I feel like this theme could be taken a bunch of different directions, so I'm curious to see what happens. Uh, we are going to start our episode today with Virginia. Virginia, what betrayal book did you bring for us? All right. Well, as long as, Sadie, you stick your betrayals within books rather than with us, then we're good. I took the tactic of finding a book that has the word betray or any of its derivatives in the title, because hopefully that means I'm on the right track for the topic. Unless, of course, the title is a betrayal in itself, then that might be problematic. It also means that I don't have to worry about spoiling anything for anybody because it's already in the title. It's said traitor in it. So I thought that worked out. So um, I chose the debut novel, The Trader Baru Comoran by Seth Dickinson. And in the UK, it's just called The Trader. And this is book one in a trilogy called The Masquerade. And all the books are out. This book has one of my favorite protagonist for a very, 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 very long time. I honestly can't remember the last time I was so obsessed with a character. And you know, characters mean a lot to me. And I love Baru so, so, so much. And this is also a book that I also can't believe. And I, I never thought that I would be so absorbed in this book. Because this is a book basically about an accountant. We're talking about like taxes and loans and balancing your assets and your expenses and your equities. And I never thought that I would have cared about a fantasy series that is kind of about economics, but I do. It is so mesmerizing and it is just so amazing. 
let me tell you a little about the story and then I'll go back to gushing about the book. So Baru lives in Taranoke with her mother, Pinion, and her two father, Sam and Solit. And Taranoke is sort of an independent fishing town. And two years ago, traders started to arrive from the Empire of the Mask. This Empire of the Mask, they call that because the people in power literally wear masks that are symbols of what kind of powers they have. And the ships that brought the traders, they're still docked today, and they didn't seem to be leaving anytime soon, even though they say that they're just here to trade goods. That's it. Baru hears her parents talk about these traders, and she can tell that they don't trust them. And there's a lot of words being thrown around that she doesn't quite understand being only seven years old, but she desperately wants in on the conversation. She wants to know what's going on. And so when her parents won't explain, she goes to talk to the traders because she thought maybe I can learn something because she's all about learning, about knowledge. And she thought maybe I can learn something and can bring back to the conversation with her parents. And this bright young child attracts the attention of a specific trader, Farie. And Farie took a liking to Baru, probably because she asked really intelligent questions. But also, it's probably refreshing that Baru is too young to really know what things you should say, what things you shouldn't say. Like when one day she went up to the guards of Farie and say, you know, I think you're not actually bodyguards. You are soldiers, aren't you? Something that she has heard her parents say in passing. And of course, the guards are like, they were shocked. They didn't know how to respond to her. And then a couple of days later, she found out that a treaty has been signed. And now Taranook is part of the Empire of the Mask. And changes are coming to her small fishing town. First and foremost, the paper money. This is something that has already slowly been seeping into the system. But now they are told that they have to use the empire's paper money. Then came the medicine and sanitation, a lot of things that really do make life a little easier for all the villagers. But most exciting for Baru is the schools that they are building. Schools that are set up to brainwash, I mean, to provide a better education for the kids. She, as I said, loves learning. And from the interactions that she has had with the traders so far, she knows the Falcresti, the people from the Empire. They know so much more about the world. They know how the world functions. And she wants to learn it all. And luckily, she was recommended by Fare, the trader that she has befriended, to join the school. And he's even willing to sponsor her education. Her parents, not so much. They're not so eager for her to get in. But seeing that Baru is so excited, they let her into the school. And she soaks everything up like a sponge. Everything that they taught her, especially math, that is something that she excel at. But the schools don't just teach science and math. It also teaches what they call incrasticism which is a school of thought that the Falcresti believes in. It is pretty much a way to justify why they are at the top 
and you're at the bottom. It is all in your genes because you have all been mixing too much and diluting. So you're no longer pure. That's why you are not as good as us. That's kind of the heart of it. And Baru was also taught in the school that a family is one mother and one father. The polyamorous marriages, like most of the Tananoke families, are forbidden. A relationship is between a man and a woman. Anything else is unhygienic. And if you discover that someone has these inclinations, someone has these like unhygienic behaviors, then you need to be sent for conditioning. This is one thing that Baru absolutely doesn't understand because she knows her family is perfect. She has one mother, she has two fathers, just like many of the kids in Tananoke. And that is how it should be. So she couldn't understand what they are teaching her. But at the same time, she's worried that if she shows that she doesn't believe in this, then they're going to kick her out of the school. And she doesn't want that either. So she tried to keep her own opinions to herself. Until one day, she was told that one of her fathers, Father Sam, who has been drafted to join the Imperial Army, didn't come home. They told her and her family that he probably got lost. And so that's why he didn't come back with the army. But Baru knows the rumor. She knows that whenever people know that people are so-called unhygienic, just like what they will see her father as, they know that very often people don't actually get to be sent to get re-educated or reconditioned. They would be murdered by the people because the people so firmly believe that this is wrong. And so they feel like they're doing a service to the empire by eliminating people like her father. And so she knows that this must be what happened. The soldiers murdered her father. And from then on, all she could think about is freeing her people so that people like her father won't get killed ever again. And for that, she has to bring down the empire. But Baru is smart. She knows that, well, a vast empire like that, you can't easily build like another force that is just as big or bigger to fight them. That's not how you can win. To win, to take down the empire, she has to fight it from within. Get to the middle of it, earn their trust, be their pet, and then stab them when they least suspect. And so she studied so, so, so hard for her imperial exam. She hopes that if she can get top marks, she's going to be assigned to Felcrass, the center of the empire. And there she's going to climb and climb and climb until she gets to the top and she will destroy them from the inside. And she did. She got top marks at her exam. And she was like, oh, I'm going to Felcrass. But when she got her assignment, it turns out that they're not sending her there at all. She has been assigned instead to a northern province called Odwin to become their imperial accountant. Now, Odwin is a place that has gone through a lot of change of hands of powers, lots of wars, lots of invasions. They're always being conquered. And now they are 
sort of like they're part of the empire, supposedly, but they're really ruled by these dukes and duchesses that have like divided up all one into little bits and pieces of land. There's so many infighting, they're always little rebellions, and it's just a giant mess. But the empire really needs to hold on to Otwin because it is such a strategic place and they need to control it, not just because of the resources, but because of all the advantages that would give the military if they have Otwin. And so this became the challenge for Baru to try to bring all the dukes and the duchesses under her control. But there's a saying that odd one cannot be ruled. And so it's going to be problematic and it's going to be really hard for Baru to do her job. Not to mention that her two previous, her predecessors, the two other imperial accountants, have been assassinated by the dukes probably and the duchesses. So what kind of snake pit is Baru going to find herself in? Now, in this book, The Traitor Baru Komaran, the question you have to ask is not who is the traitor, because we know who is the traitor is from the title, but more like who is not a traitor. Everyone is spying on someone. At every turn of the page, someone is betraying someone somewhere. Like, are they telling the truth? Is this a betrayal? Well, what about this? It's not a question of when you're going to get betrayed or when you're going to betray someone, but when and when are you going to do it again, basically? And everything is tied to a, some sort of betrayal in this book. There are just so many that I don't think I can keep track of all the secrets and all the lies and all the half-truths and all the backstabbings. You do probably need an accountant to do this. And it really speaks volumes to how tightly plotted the book is that Seth Dickinson really managed to like just really build on this story. And even some of the battle, so to speak, they're all fought on paper, like, you know, with accounting, basically. But yet there's still so much, so many secrets hidden in here. And of course, there's Baru. We know what she wants, you know, and you're going to try to have to, you have to try very hard to remember that what she wants really is to free her people, to restore her village, to restore Terranook to what it is. But at what cost? Because she does a lot of terrible things, but yet you, you still want to root for her. She kind of reminds me a little bit like, you know, just the way that you want to root for them, even though they're doing terrible things and making horrible decisions. Kind of like in the poppy wall with Rin, I, I feel a little bit like that same thing. You just you just can't help, but you want her to succeed, even when she's doing like absolutely terrible things. And and she, you can see how, how much she struggles with who she is. You know, we have this all too familiar story of an empire trying to wipe out other people's beliefs and values and trying to like convince them that, you know, you know we have a superior way of life that you should follow us. And they're trying to erase the identity, change the name of Terano even. And, and we get it from Baru's point of view, how much she is angry at this, especially with the murder of her father, but she's also desperate for approval. She's like, she doesn't, she's been taught, she's been brainwashed. So she's like really trying really hard to hold on to what she was, she believes in, trying to hold on to what her family believes in. But it's hard because she has been taught so many things by the empire especially knowing that she's unhygienic. That is sort of her secret all throughout this is that she knows she herself is unhygienic. And if someone finds that out, it's going to be used against her. 
no matter what I say and how much you read about this book, I don't think you'll be prepared for how brutal this is. It really lures you in and then it destroys you like a good trader does. I find that at the last maybe 80 pages of the book, I, I had to slow myself down and I was just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And like, you just, I can't believe what what was what was actually going on. And I just feel like I was like drowning basically because it is so suffocating in so many ways. Um, but it is such a such an absorbing read. So I hope that you will pick it up, even though it is a hard read. It is it is really, really good. And don't make the mistake that I did, which is to have book one and Korean. I bought book one. I did not buy book two or three. I bought book one. But I made the mistake of having book one and not having book two and book three right beside me because I need to know what happened. Not because it ends in a cliffhanger, but you just want to get back and find out what Baru is going to do next. And maybe the titles of the second and the third book might give you a hint. It is the monster Baru Comorant and the tyrant Baru Comorant. So again, this is the Masquerade Trilogy and it is by Seth Dickinson, the first book, The Traitor Baru Thank you, Virginia. That sounds right up my alley, actually. That sounds like a wonderful read. I, I always enjoy series that you can read in their completion right off the bat because I hate waiting. I absolutely hate waiting. And I think that us series readers, I don't know if, if we are all series readers here, but the ones of us who read series know the pain and utter horror of having to sit and wait for that next book to be released. So that is exciting that they are all available now. <laughs> so thank you, Virginia, for sharing. Uh, I am going to talk about my book next. And this is a book that I am waiting for the sequel of because the first book came out in 2021. The next book does not come out until later this year. It's coming. It is coming, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, so I am going to be talking about a book that I actually mentioned on this podcast quite a while ago um, as one of my most anticipated reads um, that was going to be coming out. Oh, I don't even remember when it would have been in maybe the fall of 2021 uh, anticipated reads. And I didn't know much about the book apart from the little blurb that, that I could find on Goodreads or on the publisher website. But I finally got the book and was very excited to read it. And in my mind, I think that it delivered. So this is Among Thieves by M.J. Kuhn. I think that when you hear the, the story of this book, it will be very obvious that it is a very Sadie book. So we start our story in the dockside city of Carowick, and Carowick is in one of the five kingdoms of the Moor. Carowick has been likened to Ketterdam from Six of Crows and Camor from The Lies of Loch Lamora. So both two books and two series that I already love. Carowick is a city that is filled with thieves, it's filled with gangs, it's filled with assassins. And one of these assassins is Rhea Cotella. Now, Rhea has only been in Carowick for a year, but she has already become one of the most feared and deadliest people in the city. Rhea is known as the Butcher of Carowick, and her and her uh, infamous twin hatchets work for the Saints gang leader, Callum Clem. So it's one of the three gangs, the Saints, one of the three gangs uh, that kind of run the underworld of Carowick. And so she works for, for Callum Clem. She is sneaky. She is very sarcastic. And she is very deadly. 
However, there's a bit more to Rhea's story than it seems. As I mentioned, Rhea has only been in Kerouac for a year. And that is because for the last six years, Rhea has been on the run from the Guildmaster. And the Guildmaster is a powerful, magic-wielding ruler of the Five Kingdoms of the Moor. And the Guildmaster and his operatives, they spend all of their time tracking down every single child in the Five Kingdoms who shows any type of magical potential. And all of these children get brought to the Guildmaster's Island where they will be trained and they will be taught how to use their magic in the proper way, taught how to protect themselves and to protect others with their magic. And once this has been done, they will be bonded, they will be brainwashed, and they will eventually be sold at a yearly auction to the highest bidder as adepts who are mindless, magical slaves. So it's not a fate uh, that anyone would like. So Rhea knows that as long as the Guildmaster and his staff are looking for her, she's never going to be free. She's always going to have to be on the run. She's going to have to leave Kerouac again to find a new city with a new identity and a new life for another year before she will most likely have to run again. But then an opportunity presents itself to Rhea, as they often do in these kinds of books, an opportunity that would free Rhea not only from her life as Callum Clem's assassin, but from her life on the run from the Guildmaster. But as often happens in these books as well, the opportunity is not a simple one. The opportunity is to sneak onto the Guildmaster's island and steal a mysterious quill. It's an artifact, a relic, really. And its true purpose, Rhea is pretty sure that she knows, but nobody else does. The payout for this job is huge. And Callum Clem is very excited to be involved in this. So he decides that he's going to put together a crew and sneak onto this island and perform this pretty much impossible heist. Now, joining Callum and Rhea, we have Tristan. Tristan is a young pickpocket. He first appeared in Kerouac just kind of randomly one night. He was way too well-nourished, way too clean to be the orphan and stowaway that he claimed to be. So he goes into one of Callum Clem's casinos. He tries to cheat at one of the tables, and he is caught. So he is given the choice. He can either be killed or he can work off his insurmountable debt one day at a time working for Clem. Tristan probably makes the right decision in that uh, situation. He now works off, works off his debt for Clem, but he hopes secretly that no one will find out where he actually came from, what his background actually is. Then we have Nash. Nash is a sea captain. She's a smuggler. She prefers life on the water. She only comes ashore when absolutely necessary. Nash has decided that she's going to allow the rumors about the relationship between her and Clem to continue only because they seem to offer a certain amount of protection for her and she's okay with that. Nash has spent her whole life praying and dreading that she's going to see her sister again, that one day she is going to see the mindless face of her sister as one of the adept slaves because her sister was taken away by the Guildmaster as a child and Nash has not seen her since then. Then we have Ivan. Ivan is the saint's master of disguise. He can make any of the crew 
absolutely unrecognizable from one second to the next. He has lots of trick outfits that can change in the blink of an eye. He knows exactly what to do to disguise any person. And the only thing in life that he wants is to save his brother from prison and take back his kingdom. Something that would be a lot easier to do with a whole bunch of money that he can make from selling the Guildmaster's Quill. Last on our team, we have Evelyn. Now, Evelyn is not a member of the Saints. Evelyn is actually a disgraced member of the Royal Needle Guard. And Evelyn, recently disgraced, was fired after she let Rhea sneak past her into the palace and maim one of the members of the royal family. Evelyn only wants one thing, and she keeps it a secret from pretty much the whole crew, but she's very clear about what she wants. She wants to kill the butcher of Kerouac. She wants to kill Rhea. Now, this is something that Callum Clem has promised her that she can do if she helps them steal the quill. So as you can see, our betrayals are already starting. And so our heist begins and our betrayals begin. Each member of the crew, as you can see, has their own reasons for wanting to betray the others, for wanting to steal the quill, for what they're going to do with the quill once they have it. Each member of the crew has reason upon reason upon reason to betray every other member of the crew. And there are a lot of betrayals in this book. I will not tell you all of them, but there are a lot of them. They start early on with Callum Clem betraying Rhea to Evelyn, and then with Rhea betraying Callum Clem by selling him out to the palace guards before they even leave the city. And this is to ensure that Rhea is going to be in charge on the voyage and that when she decides to run off with the quill, Callum Clem will not be there to stop her. So there are many betrayals, as I mentioned, some that we know about and that I've mentioned, some that will come as a surprise, and some that are not revealed until the very last pages of the book, some even on the very last page of the book. So as you can see, this is why I was really wanting that sequel to come out. <laughs> the book is told in alternating POVs. So you see the five thieves, um, you get it to hear from their perspectives. Um, each chapter reveals a little bit more about their backgrounds, about their motivations, about the betrayals that they are planning to make. And as the book goes on about the betrayals that maybe they weren't planning to make, but uh, end up making in the end. The author Kuhn has done a really good job of making each of the characters very relatable, often sympathetic. And by the end of the book, you feel like you have also changed allegiances many different times throughout the story, uh, depending on whose, uh, whose chapter you're reading and whose story uh, you're rooting for in the moment. Yeah, I absolutely love this book. It was a great read from start to finish. You have Rhea is sort of your main protagonist. And as I said, she is snarky. She's sarcastic, but she's strong. She has very deep motivations for why she's doing what she's doing that sort of come out as the book goes on. Um, you learn a bit, well, quite a bit more about uh, about her history, what has led her to Kerouac, what has led her to need to steal this quill from the Guildmaster, and what has led her to even be on the Guildmaster's radar, which she has not been since she was a child. She has only been for the last six years. 
So yes, as I mentioned, it is a great book for fans of Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows, for Scott Lynch's Lies of Locke Lamora, for anyone who is wanting to read about an absolutely impossible heist that seems like there's no possible way that they could actually complete this. There's extremely high stakes. It's just a lot of fun and a lot of a lot of betrayal. So if you're looking for betrayal, this is a great book from start to finish. This is Among Thieves by M.J. Kuhn. All right. Well, I think that we are going to move on to our existential question. And the question that I have for my book friends today is, when you are reading a book, is there anything that the characters can do or that the author can do to make you stop reading that book? To make you, for lack of a better term, so angry or so upset that you cannot continue on reading that book or alternatively, a series that you absolutely cannot continue on reading the next books in the series. I'm curious to hear from Mark. What do you think about this one? Well, for me, I don't think there would be very many things that in general would always be like, no, I can't continue on with this, but we'd have to feel like it's, there's a reason for it within the actual story. Like if there's, if it's just placed there to shock someone or to like try and like play with your feelings, kind of something like that, then I feel like it might be something that would make me put a, a book down on occasion and i have done that before but if it's something that feels like it's logically placed or feels like it's it has an actual role within the larger book then i feel like that typically no it wouldn't turn me off in any way or not any way but so much that i would put down the book that's right now when you say that you put down the book is that permanently you would put down the book or just kind of for the moment and then pick it back up again later potentially permanently definitely for at least a little bit but i think that there definitely happen times where i have permanently put it down just being like okay i don't i just don't want to read this anymore it's just it's too much now it's just too stupid or too much too whatever then that's kind of the feeling that i guess like oh that's too extreme almost like it took it too far or something like that fair enough well thank you for sharing mark uh kareen are you the kind of person who would put down a book, get so angry at a character that you refuse to read it anymore? No, because every book is a prison sentence that I impose upon myself. So much to the dismay of some of my book friends is that once I start a book, I'm committed to it. Whether I hate read through the end or I actually enjoy the process. Um, so no, there isn't anything that can really make me stop reading a book because I'm going to read it until the bitter end. And if it's really bad, I'll stop paying attention as much um, and kind of like speed read through the end of it. But no, there's there's literally nothing that can be said or done that will make me stop reading a book. Stop reading a series, I will say, because then I finish the book and then I have like a free pass. The one thing that really kind of annoys me in a series, especially if it's like a long-term series, if it's, if, if it, if the main character gets what I in my brain call like love stupid where they're like oh no like I need to do make this really ridiculous self-sacrificing action in order to like protect the person that I love when really all of this could just be solved by a simple like conversation maybe that really bothers me because like what's the point of being in love with this person if you can't talk to them <laughs> anyways so yes that's the only thing all right, thank you for sharing uh, Virginia. I feel like you might have some different thoughts on this topic. Oh, Sadie. Oh, Sadie, you know, so many things can stop me from reading a book. I have absolutely no problem just shutting the book down and returning it to the library or throwing it away. 
absolutely no problem. Just to name a few things, God, it's just so many, too many. But just to name a few, when it's a book that is all style, no substance, I'm looking at you, Night Circus, like, no thank you. I hate that type of book because it's just all like, oh, look, you know, so pretty. But there's like absolutely nothing for me to hang on to, no characters, no plot. Hate it. When I couldn't care less about what happens to the protagonists and the characters, that's also really hard. When they behave in like just unrealistic way. I mean, I understand that that's like totally depending on your opinion, but like when they, when I feel like this, this is not possible, this is not how real human beings behave, then I can't deal with it. The googly eyes, the googly eyes, I cannot deal with care. Like if that's just like, if for somebody like, oh, you know, I can't, cannot, cannot deal with it. And then the other thing is what my husband called like, like, I will tell you later syndrome, which he said after he reads a bunch of Maze Runner books. It is when, it is when it's just like all suspense, which is good because you want to be interested in no, but it's just everything is just like, oh, well, like, you know, like, I'll tell you later. Oh, no, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll, I'll tell you later. And you just keep having this, like, I'll tell you later, but you never actually get to anything. Well, then why should I? care about it. Give me something, something so that I can be like, oh, that's interesting. Well, like, let's see how that develops. But if you're just everything, it's just like, ooh, you know, like it's all so suspenseful. I'm not going to tell you anything. Well, then I don't care. Um, Just to name a few. So there's so many things that will stop me reading. And when it comes to a series, I think it's when the second or the third, when it takes it in the weird way that I don't, it's not consistent with the first book. Like, you know, because you, you give me a first book and then I, there's certain things I expect out of you, whether it's writing style or whether it's the character development or the plot. But then suddenly you go like in a different direction that sometimes is too jarring. It's not what I sign up for. So yeah, when that happens, then it also stops me from, I, mean, I, I will stop now, Sadie. How about you, Sadie? I want to start by saying that I had um, started listening to The Night Circus as an audiobook when I went on mat leave. I would listen to it uh, sometimes when I would go walking, um, just kind of have it on in the background. Um, I am still about 50% of the way through it, and I have pretty much stopped listening to it now. So this is, I, I don't usually put books down, but I, I would agree with you on that one, Virginia. <laughs> And I can't quite place what it was about it that did not draw me in, but I just could not. I could not. Maybe one day. Maybe one day I will finish it. Uh, so yeah, so I, I tend to be similar to Kareen. If I start a book, I will usually finish it. That has changed a little bit lately just because I don't have as much time as I used to. <laughs> and so I don't want to waste my time reading books that I am not enjoying with characters that say that they're one way and do the complete opposite. And I'm pretty sure the author is trying to make it seem like they are strong, independent women, but then having them basically do whatever their partner says is not, it does not correlate. It does not. So yes, yeah, so there are, there are definitely a few things I would say, probably just more of a engagement at this point. If I'm not engaged, then, then I just don't want to don't want to spend my time. Um, similar to Kareen, if there's a series, then I will often, if I don't enjoy the first book, I won't, I won't continue on. However, someone once said at the library, I don't remember who it was, that you sometimes have to give the second book a chance because the first book is not always because the author's still trying to find find their place in it. So I don't know if it was one of my book friends that said that or someone else. I can't truly can't remember. Um, so I have occasionally tried second books. 
and then put the series down because it still did not, <laughs> not deliver. So trust your instincts, Sadie. The first book, if it's not good, then... True, that's true. <laughs> you know better. I do. I know what I like. I do. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for sharing. Uh, we're going to go back to our betrayals, and we are going to see what Mark has brought for us today. Thank you, Sadie. So I'll be talking about The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. This book is going to be a fair bit different from the first two books that we just heard about from Sadie and Virginia. There's definitely is betrayal in this book, but it's a much more sort of concentrated betrayal of a specific series of events later on in the book, whereas seems like Sadie and Virginia's are a bit of a series of betrayals throughout. So this one has a little bit more buildup in that sense, I guess you could say, towards the ultimate betrayal of the book. So this book by Claire Massoud is her fourth novel, and it was also longlisted for the 2013 Geller Prize. So it definitely has a bit of a literary backing behind it. Massoud is also a primarily fiction writer, but she's also written nonfiction and more literary essays. But this one, of course, more on the fiction side of things. In The Woman Upstairs, we are introduced to Nora Eldridge, an elementary school teacher in a small town in Massachusetts. After growing up in Manchester by the sea, her life has been marked by disappointment and regret. Having grown up most of her life wanting to be an artist, she spent much of her high school life experimenting and rebelling against the school authority, inclusion with her art teacher. But having cruised through high school without taking her academic study very seriously and preparing to go to art school... But in their final year of high school, Norris dealt the devastating news that her mother has ALS and has an unknown amount of time left to live. Though the progression of her illness is slow, Nora feels obligated to stay near home in order to be around her mother and to help out at home. Because of this, she's unable to move to go to art school and eventually settles on becoming an elementary school teacher and attends a local college studying English. Having done this, she sort of feels like she's ultimately taken the safer route through her career and life. She's now feeling rather bored as a sort of late 30-something. She sort of now feels like she's kind of taken a route that she is not entirely satisfied with. She's feeling kind of bitter and angry, as is made clear by her inner monologues. Because in this book, she goes through many long, swear-filled inner rants about the world and how it's disappointed her, how the world itself has betrayed her in her own perspective. Every time her life is trying to go on track, she's trying to work towards something, the situation has kind of turned against her and made that almost impossible or feels like she's obligated to do something other than what she wants to be doing with her life. Other sort of in contrast to her public image, Nora tries to put on a happy face. She just kind of goes with the flow. She's the happy, nice elementary school teacher. She's light and cheery and whatnot. But she's become pegged as like that sort of never married, childless, boring lady who teaches children at school in her view of how people see her. And the title of the book, Woman Upstairs, is like her term for herself that she uses frequently throughout the book as like an alternate to these older kind of dated derogatory terms that sort of get used for women who don't get married are continuing to live their lives without children seen as quote-unquote boring people like there's these old ter older terms that kind of get used but she Masood tries to avoid using those so she comes up with this term the woman upstairs that Nora uses to refer to herself and through this backdrop established by the book, we sort of see in the present day, Nora begins to become acquainted with the parents of a new transfer student in her class named Reza. Reza is the son of Skandar and Serena Shahid. The Shahids have recently moved to town as Skandar, the father of Reza, has taken up a one-year term appointment at a nearby university while he works on his latest scholarly book. He's currently working on an important line of research on how to study history through the lens of ethics and ethical philosophy. 
this line of work intrigues Nora. It's intellectual and sort of conceptual character as something that she has a clear respect for in his pursuit of truth, justice, and insight into humanity. Whereas Serena, Reza's mother, is quite different from Skandar, but she also just so happens to be a professional artist. Serena's work as an artist is also like not surprisingly interesting to Nora, given her own desire to become an artist. And had it not been for due to circumstances, she kind of imagines that perhaps she too could be living the kind of life that Serena now has with a family. She's got her own practice. She's well-respected in some art circles and things like that. So she kind of sees herself in Serena and what sort of might have been. Nora becomes more acquainted with the Shahids because at school, um, because of his name and skin color, Reza is the frequent target of bullying and xenophobic comics by his classmates. And because of this, Nora's often communicating with Serena and Skandar about these issues, the kinds of things that are going on, because uh, I should also mention that this book takes place during 2004, which is kind of like the sort of post 9-11 era. There's kind of like this feeling of tension between different cultures and ideas and things like that. So, of course, being from like a more Middle Eastern background, this family is facing issues in this part of America at that time as fears and ideas about like terrorism and all these other things are sort of bubbling and going around culturally. As she becomes more acquainted with the Shahids, Nora knows that this sort of raises ethical issues about what an appropriate boundary is to be drawing between her personal and professional life, how intertwined she's becoming with the Shahids. And this even ends up including like attending dinner parties, participating in Serena's artistic practice, and even going so far as renting a studio with Serena to begin creating her own work again and accepting gifts and things like that to try and get back into the art world of like trying to create her own work again. Nora knows that this isn't entirely appropriate, but she feels like she wants to keep going with it. She wants to try and start making her own choices to living her own life, to begin creating her own work again. She started creating her own work of arts, like a series that she's currently working on at this studio through like communicating with Serena and collaborating with her in different ways. Essentially, her life becomes much more entangled and intertwined with that, the Shahids in ways that develop throughout the book. All the while, the reader may be thinking like, well, why is Nora continuing to get intertwined in these ways when she knows it's wrong? And why do the Shahids take such a keen interest in Nora and making her part of their lives in such a close and intimate kind of way? And this is kind of where the betrayal aspect of the book comes into play, how their lives become intertwined, why they become intertwined, and is there like some sort of ulterior motives going on underneath the surface of what the Shahids see in Nora and how their friendship begins to develop? And I don't want to give away any of the details of how that betrayal sort of comes to the surface and what it entails because it's a very key part of the later stages of the book. But I will say that, as I kind of mentioned earlier, Nora kind of feels like the world itself has conspired against her. Every time something starts to go right, there's some sort of major obstacle. In this case, it's a betrayal of her confidences in people, her betrayal of her confidence in herself as an artist, and how that personally affects her internally. As I sort of indicated earlier, it's a very much a introspective kind of first person driven perspective of the novel it's all told from Nora's perspective so that kind of personal impact that these events have on her is very much a key central aspect of the book so if you like that kind of introspective personalized and uh, reflective artistic aspect of the book then I think you definitely should also pick up The Woman Upstairs by Claire Masood. Thank you, Mark. I think that uh, goes to show that you can find betrayals in any genre of book, really. So you don't have to stick to one genre. If you're looking for betrayals, read across all the genres. There's lots to find. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Last, we have Kareen. Kareen, what betrayal book did you bring today? Well, Sadie, 
what would a betrayal episode be without a little bit of actual betrayal by one of the book friends? Although I could argue as the current book friend lawyer that what is crime but the ultimate betrayal of society and a transgression between people and the community? Yeah? Sure? So, I am talking about betrayal, and I have chosen a nonfiction piece that I was going to read anyways, but I would argue kind of fits the theme. This is the book Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks by Patrick Raiden Keefe. And at the first, you might be thinking, oh, this is just one of Crean's true crime books. And like, you're not wrong. You're not wrong, but Patrick Raiden Keefe has a, a an illustrious writing career that might be of interest to some of our listeners. So he's the author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, which I've talked about on this podcast before. And he is also the author of Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, which arguably I should have chosen for this particular episode, but didn't remember that until I was about halfway through this book and had already committed. So I'm talking about this one. Patrick Raiden Keefe was a staff writer for The New Yorker, and this is essentially a collection of his essays for The New Yorker. It is primarily true crime that, again, falls under that title of rogues. And then at the very end, there's an essay about Anthony Bourdain, which I would argue doesn't fit the theme <laughs> at all, because as far as I know, he was not a grifter, killer, rebel, or crook. So I don't know how that one kind of snuck in, but sometimes when you're making a short story compilation, like you kind of have to choose something that works for most things. So again, they are long form essays, which I would argue are better enjoyed in short bursts rather than trying to mainline it, which happened. It is, again, true crime obsession. There's a lot of betrayals, but also kind of like the why and what happens after a betrayal happens. For example, like the hunt for El Chapo, <laughs> the fallout of that one is the Mexican drug lord's lawyer gave him a call. And of course, um, the author was absolutely sweating bullets, even though El Chapo was behind bars. And so he gets a call from the lawyer saying like, hello. Hi. <laughs> he read the article. Oh, he wants you to write his memoirs. Oh, oh no. <laughs> so sometimes the fallout is positive. Sometimes the fallout is negative. I wanted to talk about maybe my favorite a story is maybe not the right word, but I'm going to use the word allegedly a lot because it has not been proven in a court of law and thus is specu very well-researched speculation. Uh, an essay about wine fraud, which I think to me, is a victimless crime. They they get something in return. It's a little bottle. Did they probably pay too much for it? Yeah, but wine is overpriced. Anyways, it's essentially rancid juice. And so this is about a very, very famous cache of wine, in particular one bottle, which was dark green, sealed with a like black wax, and inscribed on it were the initials TH dot J. It was a 1787 Lafitte, this is my stab at it, which probably means something to someone who knows anything about wine, but it was the initials in particular that caught the interest of collectors. T.H being the initials of, anyone want to take a stab at it? A very famous wine collector and very dead person. Thomas Jefferson. 
So Thomas Jefferson, notorious wine collector, who I believe when he was in office spent of the national budget about 120,000 US dollars on wine alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm but had spent some time in Paris. And so there was <laughs> hidden, uh, found bricked up into a cellar, a collection of very old wine inscribed with these initials. Now, when asked exactly where this cellar was, the answer was Paris. When asked for more details, they were not forthcoming. Would ask for any sort of like information about where this wine came from, the answer was the cellar. Yet, however, this entire lot of very old, extremely rare wine was brought to Christie's, where Michael Broadbent authenticated it. Broadbent is a master of wine. I don't know what that means. He drinks real good, looks at bottles and says, yes, this is a bottle of wine. Eventually, some of the bottles made their way into the collection of Bill Koch, who is an energy businessman who has a lot of money, who eventually sold his energy business for an obscene amount of money. And so he bought some of these bottles transcribed with the little initials. And it wasn't until years after this process that the uh, curator of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello kind of piped up and said, I don't, I don't think this is real. Did anyone check this out? At any point? And the answer is no. Now, allegedly, and here's where it comes very allegedly, these bottles were found, uh, I don't even know the right word that I'm going to use for legal reasons, acquired, there's we're going to go, um, by Hardy Rodenstock, who was a flamboyant German wine collector, who was maybe a music publisher at some part, and maybe a part of the famous and wealthy Rodenstock family. He was very famous for being able to find the most rare and thought-lost bottles of wine. So collectors would go into Russia and try to find like the czar's last wine collection and they would absolutely not be able to. And then Rodenstock would kind of fly in on a jet and be like, oh, they're right over there. Have we considered looking over there? And here they are. And I'll be selling them later. He was notorious for having weekend long wine tastings where <laughs> you could drink like the rarest wines for an entire weekend. And he also wouldn't let you spit it out. So everyone got wasted on 200-year-old bottles of wine, including all of the best critics who... <laughs> sorry, it's just so good. So he's getting all these critics absolutely smashed. And so they're going like, yeah, that's a great wine. That's a... Wow, that's the most authentic bottle of wine I've ever tasted in my entire life. This guy's a genius. And so whatever he happened to touch or acquire or find was passed off as legitimate. Now, the problem is, is there was a nerd. And so this nerd is Cinder Goodwin, who is a researcher for the Jefferson Foundation. And again, wrote like a letter to Christie saying, hey, guys, um, so I looked through all of Jefferson's papers and like all the wine that he bought. And I went through the archives and like it doesn't mention any of this. And he was like really meticulous about what bottles and vintages he got. Like he had lists, lists upon lists upon lists. And none of these wines show up on any of the lists. 
at this point, Rodenstock replies by saying, shut up. Um, can you study Jefferson at university? And the answer is, yeah, you, you can. But the problem is, is that you can't actually accurately determine the age of old wine. You can carbon date it to a certain point. But after that, you're relying on the guesswork of experts. They look at the glass and they can try to determine, yes, this is a 19th century glass. But is the bottle authentic? Maybe. Is the wine inside authentic? Hard to say. The label could be authentic, or the paper could be authentic, or the ink could be authentic, but the actual label itself may not be authentic. And is the wine inside authentic? Well, you can ask a wine expert, which, what a job, and they can taste it, and they can say it's authentic, but they're just basing that on what information and palate that they have. And if all the wine that they've ever tasted is fake, how would they know what an authentic wine tastes like? So Koch ends up suing Rodenstock for alleged fraud. And even though, you know, he not did not directly sell it to Koch, <laughs> he accused him of doing an ongoing scheme of wine fraud, which I love. Um, so that is just one of the delightful stories in this book. Some of them are sad. Um, some of them are rough. There's a wonderful story of the murkiness of betrayal of Astrid Holader, who betrayed her brother in testifying for him. He was an Amsterdam gangster of some beloved stature, and she was the one who came forward and betrayed her. But for what reasons and why? And is that even accurate? How can you trust the word of one sibling against another? I mean, she called her biography Judas, which is a bold move. There are a lot of kind of famous stories or books or stories that have been made famous by Patrick Radin Keefe. So Amy Bishop, the documentary of the Lockerbie Bomber, Steve Cohen's Insider Training. The very worst of all is the story of Mac Burnett, who is the producer and kind of creator of Survival and then eventually did The Apprentice and then eventually kind of like sold out the entire American nation by making Trump seem competent and coherent through editing, which eventually led to him being, you know, elected president. President. So there's a lot of betrayals in this book, which I feel like fit the theme very well. There's personal betrayals. There is betrayals against community. There is betrayals against the larger society. Um, all of them extremely well written. All of them very well researched. It is a delight to read this book. If you're looking for something short, I really recommend it. If you're looking for more kind of like longer works, Empire of Pain and Say Nothing are really astounding. Um, but if you're just looking for like a quick dip, if you have read through all the New Yorker this month and you're just like, oh, I just want more of those long form essays, you can pick up Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels and Crooks, Brackets and Anthony Bourdain by Patrick Radin Keefe. I say that that's the ultimate betrayal. You have a book about crooks and then throw something about Anthony Bourdain in there just for the heck of it. And I, I think it fits the theme. I think that there is enough betrayal within the stories that it's, uh, yeah, I think you're good. You're good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you to all of my book friends for joining us today and for talking about a a theme that I don't want to say is near and dear to my heart because as a person, I do not like to betray people, but I do sometimes like to read about it. So near and dear to my reading tastes maybe. Well, thank you so much for reading books that are about betrayal and for bringing them to our listeners uh, today. Uh, we will see you again. Have a good day. Bye. 
Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.